Hi everyone, welcome to episode 3 of Beyond Borders by MSA. For those that don't know, MSA Novo is one of the only global institutional funds systematically investing in emerging technology markets. And with Beyond Borders, we host the world's leading technology founders and game changers. And I'm super excited to be hosting Elizabeth Carpenter once again, the CEO of Circle. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Um, And I mean, we'd love to, first of all, kick off by telling our listeners about your background and how you ended up at Circle. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Yeah. So so I've done... um... A, a lot of different things uh, in uh, in my career. Um, I started out in investment banking uh, to you know sort of understand the uh, the, the comings and goings and and internal um, uh, dynamics of uh, mergers and acquisitions and um, capital markets transactions and things. Um, and so that was uh, that was fantastic. Uh, and I did that you know very early on in my career. But from that point forward, I basically uh, exclusively chose um, careers that uh, I had a, a very, very distinct um, passion for what the company was doing. So um, I spent a number of years in the um, film and media and entertainment industry, uh, about a decade, uh, because that was something that, um, that you know, I wanted to bring basically entertainment into people's homes. Uh, and it started out with television. And over the course of that arc, uh, it ended up uh, being streamed in. Um, and that was then a really nice, and this is where my relationship with Jeremy Allaire, the CEO of, of uh, Circle comes in. That was a, a natural, uh, I also went to business school and law school in the middle of all that. But anyway, um, the my media background is what um, got me uh, introduced to uh, Jeremy when he had an idea to build a uh, an online video platform and this was back in the early 2000s, which today sounds very kind of boring to someone who who was uh, maybe not around at that time or wasn't uh, was too young to to uh, know anything other than the world with the Internet. But essentially, um, you know, the idea was to enable all this video content that you could only get either broadcast into your home through an antenna or through a, a cable or a satellite. Um, get it actually streamed into your home, um, or you had to you had to play it on either a video cassette or a CD or, or a DVD, excuse me. And so, when I made the transition from being in kind of traditional media and and um, and and again over the the course of that experience at News Corporation, I went from traditional broadcast media into streamed uh, media, streamed video, and filmed content. Um, it was a natural uh, progression for my career. And very fortunate that um, uh, I got introduced to Jeremy, who had this idea for building an online video platform. And that was uh, about 19, almost 20 years ago. Uh, and um, and so that was also my first entrepreneurial experience building a company. I helped co-found a company called Bright Cove with Jeremy, uh, who was the CEO and founder and or is, I guess, still technically is the CEO, uh, no longer the CEO, but still still considered the founder. Um and um, and I was there until we brought <clears throat> brought that public. I stayed shortly after we brought it public. In that case, I chose that as part of my career because it was again I wanted to make people happy, and that and I I personally always found it particularly enjoyable. It brought joy into my life to consume content, whether educational, pure entertainment value, 
what have you, um, to enable people to get access to that content even easier. And so at this point in, you know, 2003, 2004, the internet was becoming, uh, was not only becoming something for content, email, et cetera, for, for the written word, but it was also starting, it, it was the natural timing for it to start being able to handle video as well. So this was groundbreaking at the time. Uh, YouTube was a glimmer in the founder's eyes of YouTube. It was very early on. And our goal was to build a B2B platform to enable uh, uh, content creators of video content to stream it easily into, um, into, into end users' homes. And that's what we did. We brought the company public, et cetera. Then I, I, um, I had about a, a three-year period of, of not working uh, with, uh, with Jeremy uh, because I decided to start to try to give back a bit more than I had through um, nonprofit software to enable nonprofits to be better equipped to raise money. This is a very American thing. America has a very philanthropic culture. We have a lot of, uh, not that other countries do not, but we have a very formal um, uh, kind of infrastructure for um, giving charitable gifts and charitable donations and such. And so for those companies, uh, sorry, those organizations, those nonprofits to be able to raise money a little bit more easily by more easily identifying who the donors might be um, is obviously something that can pull on one's heartstrings and be very motivational uh, as an industry to work within. So I helped start another company um, that was building nonprofit software to uh, enable nonprofits to be better equipped to uh, raise money. And in that process, uh, completely coincidentally, uh, Jeremy and I were were basically without really entirely realizing it, we would bump into each other on the sidewalk. This was back before COVID, obviously. So uh, everyone was in offices. And it turns out we were on the opposite side of a, of a brick wall in two different entryways in a building in Boston. <laughs> and, uh, and so I started hearing about his ideas uh, around uh, about, about Circle and what he was trying to do before he even founded Circle. And he always said it would be a 10 to 20 year vision and it always seemed incredibly motivating and like this really big problem to solve. You know, how do you enable, uh, how can you uh, enable um, uh, the, the, the sort of internet platform as it stood back then, this new incarnation of it that we now know as Web3 to enable uh, the internet of value to kind of be born and blossom and all the implications that had for people like us, for the un as well as for the unbanked and the underbanked was just, it was something that I just couldn't get enough of as I would hear him talk through just, you know, lunches we would have or meeting, bumping into each other on the sidewalk. And so essentially that's what led to me joining Circle uh, seven years ago now. I just had my seventh Circleversary uh, recently. Uh, we refer to them as Circleversaries or, or work anniversaries. And um, and uh, Jeremy, you know, that was the right time. 2016 was the right time for me to join uh, Circle. And so that's how that's how I got here. That's incredible. Well, congratulations on your journey, first of all. Um, and it's also very incredible to see throughout your journey how you've also witnessed all of these whole industries just being built on the internet. And like you always said, things and economies moving at the speed of the internet. That's something that's always stuck with me from our previous conversations. Um, yeah. And definitely one thing we always see, especially from the venture capital world, and especially in emerging market, is that entrepreneurship is really built towards necessity and needs. And that's where we see most companies really flourish because they're building something towards, you know, 
not necessarily mass markets, but something that's really being absorbed by global economies. Right. Um, so that's that's great to hear. Um, well, for all of our listeners, I think we have a lot of listeners from different backgrounds. So we'd love to hear more um, on a high level what a stablecoin is, sure. uh, what are its uses, and how it's related to the digital dollar. And then maybe you can also introduce to us um, Circle's USDC as well. Fundamentally, Circle believes money should move at the speed of the internet as easily and cheaply as an email. It doesn't today. It either just costs too much for simple payments to be made, even in a domestic context, um, but heaven forbid you're trying to send money across borders, then it can take days and it costs even more simply to move money from A to B, which is really unfortunate because content doesn't move that way. So why should money? And the reason money moves that way is because we are still stuck with infrastructure that is extremely old. It's decades old and the and it's not just decades old, but the kind of um, paradigm within which the financial infrastructure has been built is actually, you know, century, at least a century old, if not actually at this point, more more than that. Um, and so it's really time for it to be uh, brought into, um, you know, the the uh, the 2000s uh, in, a, in a big way. It's it's long overdue. So if you think about a what that means, we now have you know, the, the Internet. Um, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but the, the, the internet was a, you know, a base layer for, uh, for, uh, for the written word. And then eventually it, it, uh, it, it's, it's a bill, it's capabilities expanded so that it became a base layer for filmed content, as I was saying earlier. And then all these different, uh, building blocks started, started, uh, coming together. You could take, uh, you know, combine satellite technology and mapping, with uh, a you know essentially crowdsourced uh, uh, dynamics of where a human might be, and poof, all of a sudden you had Uber, or all of a sudden you had Airbnb, and all these pieces came together. Well, similarly, with what's happening with blockchain technology and cryptography, you have the ability now to have an, what we refer to as an internet of value. Uh, this is how we think about this generic term that's used probably too much at this point, Web3, it's confusing to people. But the idea that the internet has now evolved to a place, there is a base layer that today enables you to send money as easily, to send value as easily as you can send an email. It's just not hit mainstream adoption yet, but we're, we are there. And so what a, what a stable coin is, is it is a cryptographic asset, it's a digital token, that represents normal old money, in our case, a dollar. I'll use that as the example. I'll just refer to that today. Um, we also have a euro, uh, a euro denominated one, but I'll, I'll focus on USDC for the dollar. So that stable coin, and I'll explain why, it, why it's called stable in a second, uh, represents a dollar and it can fly around the world. It's a digital cryptographic representation of a dollar and it can literally fly around the world at fractions of a penny in milliseconds just like an email does. I could literally send you USDC today and you'd have it in milliseconds. Um, what email and the internet did for content, blockchain, cryptography, et cetera, is the internet of money is, is doing for the internet of money and um, and what we refer to as, as value exchange, sending money from A to B for whatever the purpose happens to be. So we invented USDC almost exactly five years ago, actually. This is the 10th birthday year of 
circle, and it is the fifth birthday year of uh, USDC. And in that time, it has grown to be the world's largest fully regulated stablecoin with nearly 30 billion in circulation and over 10,000, uh, excuse me, 10 trillion dollars transacted so far over the course of that, that time. The way it works is as follows. You give me a dollar, I give you a digital USDC, US dollar coin that represents that dollar. We hold what's known as a fiat dollar, that's normal old money. We hold that normal old dollar in a globally systemic bank account, in our case, Bank of New York Mellon, for example. And I give you a digital version of that dollar to use. If you ever want the, the normal old dollar back, we'll take it out of the bank account and we'll give it to you. And it's called a stable coin because it's only ever worth a dollar. If you come to us to get your dollar back, it will only ever be worth a dollar. It does not increase in value. It does not decrease in value. We like to actually describe our business as quite boring because unlike other, you know, crazy speculative cryptographic uh, assets, um, we're boring. USDC literally is only ever worth a dollar. It does not go up and down in value. And so it might go up and down in value on private secondary markets. But but if, if a company comes to us to get its dollar back, we are a B2B company. We will give you a dollar. We are sworn to that. It's what we do. It, this doesn't work because if, unless we we can promise that. Because if you think about the value of a cash dollar, I should have brought one with me today to show, but that dollar, that piece of paper of any money anywhere in the world, the paper money or a coin form of money is actually what's really at the base of it is trust. If you don't trust that it's worth what you think it's worth so that you can go to the store, for example, and go buy a soda with it or go buy a bottle of water or whatever it might be, if you don't have the confidence that when you go to that shop to buy that thing, that that piece of paper isn't going to be worth, or the coin isn't going to be worth what you thought it was worth, then the whole model falls to pieces. And this is what we see happening in countries with hyperinflation, with banking systems people don't trust, with governments they don't trust, where the money from one day to the next literally fluctuates. The idea with a stable coin particularly one that's backed by the US dollar, one of the most stable currencies in the world on the planet, is that it's only ever worth a dollar. And so you can trust this digital form of it to go do whatever it is you wanna go do with you. Wherever money is used, a digital form of a dollar can be used. And if you're ever, for whatever reason, wanna get the conventional money out, we are uh, we will give that to you. And, and we attest to this, if the money sits in reserves, it's managed by a massive globally significant asset manager, such as BlackRock. You can see your fiat dollars in the bank. We attest to them monthly. We only ever invest them in cash and cash equivalents, which means like a treasury bill, which is as good as cash. It only It's like a three-month loan to, to the government. Your money is always recoverable and always for a dollar. And you can see in the reserves, you can see how much money for if I just used, you know, if we have $30 billion in, or about $30 billion in circulation right now, you can see the $30 billion sitting there in the reserves all the way down to the QCIP numbers, which is the certificate number of those of those government-backed treasury bills. So it's incredibly safe. And we have to do all this and we have to be as transparent as I'm describing right now, because otherwise you won't trust it. And as I said earlier, if you don't trust it, then it's game over. So the stable piece of the stablecoin is is based on all those things I'm talking about. It never goes up and down and you can trust that it's worth a dollar. So now that you have that digital dollar, what can you do with it? 
and we'll talk about this in, in, in a moment, I'm sure, but anything you can do with a regular dollar, except faster, cheaper, and more conveniently. It's like it's like saying to someone back on, at the dawn of the internet, well, what can I do with this internet thing? Well, imagine now you don't have to write out, handwrite a letter uh, on paper, fold it up, stick it in an envelope, find someone's address, stick a stamp on it, put it in the mail, and it takes days to get there. Still a miracle that it shows up on the other end, particularly if it's cross-border. But that process just cost money, time, and was inconvenient. So what if you could just write your letter and it digitally got represented in milliseconds and at fractions of a penny in your inbox, in your digital inbox, you know, uh, halfway around the world? Well, this this is what a digital wallet does for money. So hopefully that analogy is is um, is is a little bit is a little bit clearer. And the use cases we've seen, which we can go into more deeply if you want, but there's many of them. Um, I find particularly, given uh, what motivates me as a, as, a, as a human, the humanitarian use cases particularly speak to me. So we enable money to fly into places where it's you know digitally arrive in places where it's needed most. And then the recipients, for example, refugees, victims of natural disasters, people in war zones, people on the medical front lines in countries with regimes that perhaps are not uh, exactly as trustworthy as, as others, uh, can get those people in need, can get that money in a digital wallet and then do what they want with it, cash it out, buy needed supplies, et, et cetera. I think you really touched on an important point here is their use cases. Um, and it all definitely starts at trust. And with trust, we need education and exposure because at the end of the day, the most people that are going to benefit from this, like you said, are humanitarian cases. And these most of the time tend to be targeted at mass markets or uh, mass consumers that are not very well exposed to, let's say, right. the digital world or not as tech savvy in the financial space, I would say. So that brings me to my next question. How do you see the different use cases between emerging markets versus developed ones? Um, I think, you know, let me uh, let me segue into this by by explaining a little bit more some of the uh, uh, some of the things I very quickly referenced on the humanitarian use cases, because that will also um, connect some of these dots. But then there's yeah. there's many there's many other use cases as well. But um, so we have uh, a relationship that we're very, very uh, privileged to have with um, the UN High Commission on Refugees. And there are um, there's a war going on in the Ukraine and there are refugees uh, from that uh, that um, uh, that war zone, et cetera. And those folks, many of them had to just leave, get up and leave their, their homes and leave everything and, and and get out of the war zone. So what the UN has done is they've we've partnered with a digital wallet company and us to enable and a blockchain called Stellar that is explicitly um, uh, uh, built uh, so that to to help um, emerging markets um, adopt uh, basically be powered by blockchain technologies and particularly with respect to um, the exchange of value so money um, and um, and we enable we basically take in money you know normal money that is donated we convert it into USDC. We, we put it in the bank, like I told you before. Yep. And then that USDC gets sent into digital wallets uh, through the UN uh, High Commission on Refugees, known as the UNHCR. Uh, UNHCR basically manages a program to enable refugees uh, to, uh, to have a digital wallet into which the USDC goes. And then at that point, the refugee can do, has not only has funds, which they're much needed, 
but they also can do with those funds whatever it is they need. They can cash it out. They can uh, they can use it. They can they can do what have you. Our just to be clear, Circle is a business to business company. So our relationship is with UNHCR. They are our customer, and and then they enable that money um, to get into the hands of the end users. In this case, the refugees. Similar example is um, is uh, uh, is Venezuela, where starting with COVID and still to this day, we do something similar with other another set of partners that enables us to get USDC into the hands of frontline medical workers. There's 60,000, 60,000 doctors and nurses in Venezuela who get paid in this way. And then they can basically take that money and do with it what they need. And the beauty of a digital wallet, while there is still a lot of there's still a lot of complicating factors around digital wallets, and they're they're very ornery and they're not consumer friendly yet today. They are getting there, but they're not quite there. This is very much mimicking the way the internet was, where it was almost impossible for anyone who wasn't technolo- technical to use it. You had to have a modem and you had to have a phone. And it was like just this weird noise came up and then you had to connect it. It's like no one in their right mind was going to use that. But over time, the internet became consumer friendly. Same is happening with um, with Web3. But uh, basically, you have a digital wallet. It's a digital form of a wallet. And... Um, not unlike uh, a wallet you might have if you're in Singapore with Grab or a wallet in the UAE you might have with Kareem or a wallet you might have, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. with Uber, for example. This is a wallet. It's it's sitting there. It's an Internet powered wallet and value can be stored in there. And then you can go and use that as an end user. So we work with the businesses that then interface with those consumers. And so in Venezuela, these frontline medical workers have a wallet. A digital wallet that holds the money and then they can go and either cash it out at a kiosk or the other beautiful thing about this is that the digital wallet is truly digital so the way you you can access it from anywhere in the world as long as you have an internet uh access point and it could be your phone but even if your phone gets stolen you've got the seed phrase the passwords that are in your head so you could literally walk across a border go escape a war a war-torn zone a a uh a, 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 an area that has been uh, that has been, uh, you know, the, the, an area that that has had a uh, a an environmental disaster, for example, um, and you can walk to another place without any of your belongings, and and that that value, that wealth, that whatever it is that you have, that financial security is just sitting in your head. No one can take that from you. That's one of the most empowering things about about what we're doing, particularly when you think about it from the perspective of a stable, you know, that of a stable digital asset. You can take that money across borders. And it's still going to be worth what you thought it was when you first got it. So these cases like this are particularly compelling for people who want to hold the money in a currency that's stable and accepted everywhere on the planet, like the U.S. dollar. And and you you and this is very helpful where people can't trust their governments or their banks or both. Now, there's plenty of other use cases for in developing nations as well that are purely commercial, vendor and supplier payments, cross-border disbursements, basically any use for money is how USDC can be used. And and in developed economies, the same thing, you know, the same thing applies. They too create dollars as the international currency of choice. So you can see USDC flying around for all sorts of commercial use cases, capital markets use cases, uh, personal individual remittance use cases through third parties to get money from you know, say from your home country to the family in your country of origin. 
The emerging markets use cases are where we are particularly focused because that's where dollars are needed the most because people don't have easy access to dollars. And so if you can have easier access to dollars as a stable, accepted currency that's accepted anywhere on the planet, this is incredibly empowering to people. So that's kind of that that's essentially when we talk about use cases in emerging markets versus developed markets, developed markets, it's useful with any any kind of idea you might have for where money is currently used today and, and transacted. For emerging markets, it's particularly uh, helpful because often those emerging markets are in uh, countries where either the government or the banking system is not stable for whatever reason. And so the their own home currency, a citizen's own home currency, is fluctuating. It's going yeah. up and down. And so having access to a stable digital form of money is incredibly empowering and one that you can store in a digital wallet, which only you have the keys to in your head, even if you lost everything else, is enormously empowering. And like you said um, earlier, I mean, a lot of people have trust issues with official financial institutions, with governments. And this is, I think, something that we spoke about in our earlier panel is that do people trust fintechs more than banks? Um, we have more than 100 countries actively exploring central bank digital currencies. So how do you think um, that central bank digital currencies are going to be reshaping global economies? Are people going to trust these currencies as much as they trust um, you know, digital dollars being uh, enabled by institutions like Circle? Um, yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Sure, absolutely. This is a very, very fascinating topic. Um, I'll, I'll, um, I'll kind of unpack this in a, in a, from a variety of perspectives. Um, but so first of all, the development of what are known as CBDCs or central bank digital currencies is um, a great illustrative example of governments upgrading their financial infrastructure, which we welcome, by the way. This goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that financial infrastructure is old, creaky, has holes, has pipes that don't work. It needs to be, it needs an upgrade. So when countries are considering something like a central bank digital currency, we understand why they want to do it. It makes a lot of sense because their entire financial infrastructure needs to be upgraded. And this is the case in the most developed nations in the world, including uh, the US. Um, money moves around the world today on infrastructure that's terribly outdated and, and sorely in need of an upgrade. So when a when a when a nation wants to upgrade their financial system, it's natural that they would think about a CBDC as a potential solution, as one part of the solution. Now, in terms of how they might reshape global economies, a CBDC that is a central bank digital currency, there's a lot of layers to answering that question. So, so first of all, to be very clear, stable coins launched by private enterprise like Circle can absolutely coexist with a central bank digital currency. Um, as long as the CBDC is designed to be interoperable and fungible with a trusted regulated stablecoin like USDC, we're very supportive of these projects and we understand why governments want to explore them. That makes complete sense to us. We just do our best to uh, to share with those governments interested in developing them our view, which is that it's not going to do a country much good if their central bank digital currency can't interoperate with others. Like today, you can take a physical dollar and you can go to a physical exchange and you can exchange it for you know pesos or whatever it is you want. Similarly, and 
much more, much more, much faster. You should be able to do the same uh, digitally with um, with a CBDC versus any other of one country to to any other. So you want to make sure that they're fungible. USDC. This is all code. It's all just how you code it. USDC is designed to be interoperable in this way as well. Um, there's many, many developments which I won't get into today around different blockchains that USDC is works on and how easy it is to have a USDC on one blockchain, be fungible with a USDC on another blockchain. So we are doing everything we can to make sure this is all as interoperable as possible. Otherwise, you end up with all these walled gardens, which don't do the end user uh, uh, any good. So the now with respect to CBDCs philosophically uh, above and beyond what I just mentioned, um, you you and I have also discussed the topic about personal privacy in the context of a CBDC. And in an authoritarian leaning regime, CBDCs are being explored or indeed launched because of their ability to micro surveil financial transactions and thus essentially deplatform people from their money. That's less a bug than a feature of those projects. In free societies, in order for a CBDC to have a shot at taking off, it would have to make a generational bet that a central bank could resist that kind of extreme temptation of surveillance. To me, anything but that sounds like you're handing a six-year-old kid a jar of cookies and then telling them, you know, you can't snack, no, no cookies allowed. Mm -hmm. It's like, what are you doing? So, so that's a very important sort of philosophical uh, distinction about how that CBDC is designed and what the underlying principles are when it's being conceived in the first place. But if you're talking about free societies, even in free societies, CBDCs or quote free societies, CBDCs have challenges too. An analogy we use often is to the US Federal Aviation Administration. This is the regulator in the US that governs the skies and the planes, the airplanes in it. The FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, plays a vital role in ensuring safe air flight. It makes sure that airplanes know how to find each other in the skies, that airplanes are engineered well so they don't, you know, they don't have mechanical failures. Uh, if they have mechanical challenges, the FAA has rules that the plane has to be grounded until those are fixed, et cetera. That all should make pretty, pretty common sense. But here's the thing. The FAA does all that to make sure and ensure our safety. It does not design airplanes. When's the last time anyone flew on a plane designed by the Federal Aviation Administration? Never, Never heard of it. Yeah. Right. And that's because the FAA is a regulator whose job it is to protect the end user. And so they design all the rules. They design the regulatory perimeter within which private enterprise can then go and innovate. And so similar to the FAA, the federal government plays this indispensable role in ensuring the safe transmission of money to make sure that you, the end user consumer, are protected and institutions as well. But it's not clear why you would need a CBDC in a country like the US because regulators generally are, are best at regulating and they should leave it to private enterprise to innovate. The same thing happened with the internet. The most exciting innovation with the internet has been with private enterprise. And that alone should be a lesson. Same with the FAA, should be a lesson. This leads to another point, which is that generally speaking, the other challenge is that governments are not as well equipped to build out a technically complex infrastructure because they're not attracting top engineering talent. That top engineering talent is going to the, the, the private enterprises 
where they can create wealth for themselves and they can do all those all the things that one does when one is attached to a to a company as opposed to a government uh, organization or or a government uh, uh, well yeah a government organization. So generally speaking, governments aren't going to be as well equipped and as to, to find that top technical talent. And as a consequence, it makes it much harder for them to actually execute on building out something as technical and complex as what Circle is doing with USDC and other companies in the Web3 space are doing um, with cryptography and blockchain. Um, now, just to be clear, if one is developed in any country, we're of course gonna make sure that there's appropriate interoperability and fungibility because, because ultimately we care about the end user experience being extremely, extremely easy and convenient and inexpensive. And it's not going to help anyone if these are kind of closed loop systems. So we are very supportive. If there are CBDC, CBDCs out there that are gaining in popularity, we will do our best to make sure we are interoperable with them for all the reasons I just mentioned. Yeah, I think and specifically looking at emerging markets, there are a lot of um, governments and central banks in emerging markets that are, are exploring these little dollars. And when we look from a startup um, technology perspective, you have a lot of these companies that are actually struggling with existing regulations and frameworks and would much rather have these efforts be spent on standard licenses, integrated right. standard payment systems, national switches. So what yeah. about um, the role in AI? Um, so you have many people have been hopping on the AI train. That's all you hear on the news nowadays. Um, so when we think about a world where AI capabilities transact with each other, what is the answer here? Is it crypto? Is it digital dollar? Where do yes. we stand? This is this is an interesting one. That's uh, that sort of you know uh, so many of us are are thinking about in so many ways. So first of all, I think there's a debate among observers of uh, of AI. You know, do, is it does it represent just some new recent cool thing? Is it tricky? Is it a trick? Is it the end of millions of jobs, or is it this massive boon to productivity? I personally am still very much watching and learning. Um, and I think this is very much only at the early stages. Um, I tend to fall into the productivity camp, namely that AI will uh, will in fact aid in productivity, just like the internet has massively aided in productivity. There's all sorts of things, you know, I in my lifetime don't need to do anymore because, uh, or don't need to spend as much time on uh, because because I can just do things more instantly thanks to the power of the internet. I don't need to walk to a post office or drive there to deliver an envelope anymore. I can just email somebody, for example. Uh, there's so many examples of that that everyone knows about. But if you, if you, um, you know, depending on when you were born, you may not appreciate it quite as much as I do, but, uh, but I certainly have a deep appreciation for it. So I think AI will do that as well. I, I've been in tech long enough to know that you don't achieve innovation by mashing up a bunch of buzzwords either. And so this is, it's understandable that that there are uh, lots of questions around how does AI fit into blockchain and cryptography, et cetera. And it's, it, they're very, very good questions. Uh, uh, there's a lot of folks out there talking about all of them together. And I don't know how productive that is uh, because this is also still evolving. But, but anyway, you mentioned building blocks and I think you've really hit on a key thing here. You know, we've talked about building blocks in, in this conversation mm -hmm. and, and you've met, you and I have talked about this in the past as well, but if you look and at I think the course, specifically um, data, data building blocks in terms yeah. of, you know, how do we fuse data building blocks and AI together? Right, right. So if you look at the core strengths of all these technologies, 
AI excels at pattern recognition. It automates repetitive tasks, provided the data set is good. That's really important. Um, it can help with decision making if the data set is good as well. But the caveat of all caveats is how do you know if the underlying data is good? And that's where blockchain comes in, by the way, because it's a distributed ledger. And so by design, its record is immutable. It gives everybody a single view of the truth. So this opens up this range of fascinating use cases from fairer, more inclusive loan applications, for example, to superior clinical trials, to attack resistant systems, and also traceable supply chains. These all have massive end user benefits, but they also have enormous commercial benefits. And when you, if, if you look ahead to some of those developments, and you know, hopefully we take a slow and steady approach and and we don't sort of rush into some of these these things without uh, thinking through the the tech, the, yeah. the social implications of them. But you can, if you if you think about those building blocks, you can combine, assuming for example, a data set is good, decision making with a blockchain, the the immutability of a of a blockchain record um, to enable something like a more reliant, reliable, traceable supply chain. To which, by the way, you could also then add in a payment layer so that instead of what happens today when you are shipping, for example, a piece of fruit from you know, Mexico to Europe, there's a lot of paper that's still used in that transaction. There's a ton of it. And what if you had reliable data source that you could leverage AI for that could track all of the what typically happens in that transaction, layer it on top of the blockchain's immutability and add into it um, a payment mechanism, then what happens is as that, you know, avocado or whatever is moving from Mexico to, you know, wherever, Asia, wherever it might be going, Europe, it is tracked all along the way. It's very clear who has and who hasn't had possession of it. And it's also very clear. It also can then trigger the payments necessary for all of the people from the original source at the farm, all the way through all the suppliers who got it to its its end spot on a shelf in a grocery store somewhere. That is the type of thing that uh, that I believe AI will be able to be useful for. But the data sets have to be built up that are reliable first, because it's still it's still growing. If you there's so many things now, you know, if you go into AI and you try to get it to write, um, uh, you know, write a write a poem or write a uh, anything creative, it's really bad at it. It doesn't do humor at all. By the way, I've tried. <laughs> And that's because it doesn't have the data. It, does, it hasn't learned from it. It's, it's dealing with a very limited set of data still. But once those data sets become more reliable, the opportunities are, are immense. And do you think it would sort of um, trespass what certain blockchains are doing in terms of traceability? Um, or how, do, how would you compare that to that? I don't know that we know enough yet um, to know. I mean, because the challenge here is that both AI models and blockchains are really in their infancy. I mean, AI even more so than, than blockchains. And so I don't know that we really know where these two things will interact and, and really sort of join forces. I just don't think we know enough yet. Um, I think what's what's gonna be very important is, this is why we are huge propon proponents of, um, of regulation, uh, by the way, because regulation actually unlocks innovation and it unlocks responsible innovation which we don't necessarily have consistently, certainly in the blockchain and cryptography space, we do not have consistently right now. And so 
responsible innovators are going to have to work closely with regulators to ensure that consumer protections and institutional protections are paramount. But I'm particularly concerned about the consumer protections. We've seen some of the snags we've hit with social media, for example, and its impact on end users and individuals. Um, similarly, this we're talking about people's money and we're talking about commercial transactions and, and that requires innovation. I, excuse me, uh, regulation is required for that um, uh, for sure. And why we're looking, we are so delighted that regulation is trying to come out for our space in various countries, whether it's Europe or Japan or you know Singapore, um, and America is is working on something right now as well. This is critical because without that regulation, private innovators like us don't really have. We've created a regulatory perimeter for ourselves because we're responsible innovators. But wow, imagine if there was a national national regulation, then innovation would thrive. And then over time, as AI becomes more developed, you can figure out where that fits in. And I think that will also that will also help. In the meantime. All these things are just getting resolved by responsible innovators in the private space, guessing at what the what the regulation uh, will be and hoping for what it it should be, um, and that just means that the whole space is is not innovating as fast as it otherwise could be. The same applies to AI. Well, I wish we had more time as usual, but I'd like to wrap up the last question: the world from five to ten years. How do you think Circle um, is yeah. going to impact um, the world by then? I love thinking about this. This is what gets me up in the morning uh, because I can see that far ahead. And uh, you know, this is the way money will move. It's it's that at, at fractions of a penny, as easily conveniently as an email, it's possible today. It's happening today. Um, so it's already happening. It is inevitable. We need a few more building blocks, some of which are consumer facing, much easier to use. Uh, um, applications and platforms that make it make it much easier for the end user, so you don't have to, you know, remember weird seed phrases and and so forth. The, the user interface on these on the um, consumer facing uh, products needs to um, improve. Um, but the fact is, today I can zap USDC around the world at fractions of a penny and in seconds, and it's it, it's it's just a shame that it isn't. Um, uh, you know, isn't something that is um, that that everyone can use yet because they don't have access to very easy to use consumer applications that will uh, enable us to be um, uh, uh, be adopted at a at a main, at a mainstream level. Um, but when the network effects kick in, this will scale incredibly quickly, just as the internet did. And there's a number of things we're doing, by the way, which I'll just very quickly touch on, um, such as wallets as a service and so forth, which enable, it's very also tricky still for developers to develop on this. Um, and so uh, we are, we're releasing uh, all sorts of things now, and there'll be kind of this rolling thunder of, of releases to enable, to ease the complexity that developers face in choosing, for example, the right wallet infrastructure for their end users. Uh, right now, they have to make trade-offs between the security of users' assets and the ease of use. We want to make that easier for them. They shouldn't have to worry about that. Developers also need to automate business-critical interactions to scale uh, and handle daily operations, et cetera. We are releasing uh, um, uh, a, whole, a whole array of um, tooling and, uh, and platforming that, that makes it a lot easier for, um, for developers also to develop our developer audience is critical for us. Um, and that 
over time enables th these applications to to be adapted uh, adopted rather for mainstream use by by end users. Um, there's also various other things like production grade contracts that just take a long time for a developer to learn, develop, test, deploy, maintain. We we can make that easier. And there's other companies out there doing similar things, but this is all incredibly exciting. But in terms of as these building blocks uh, evolve, um, we'll get closer and closer to seeing um, mainstream adoption um, and then network effects. Uh, and in so doing, you're going to see a substantial positive impact, not only for people like you and me and the listeners for this audience, but also for the unbanked and the underbanked. Because in the same way that the internet democratized information, people with nothing more than a smartphone or access to the internet in some other way can access the world's information because of the internet, so will it be for money. A person will be able to have control over their own funds in a digital wallet, even if they lose their phone or all their belongings. It's all just in the equivalent of, you know, in their heads, so they can access it from anywhere. That's 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 extraordinarily empowering for humankind. So Circle will continue to manage USDC as it does today within a firm regulatory perimeter. Even if one is not clearly established by regulators quite yet, we will continue to manage it as if it is. And we will continue to release products and services to make it easier for businesses to leverage USDC for all of their monetary needs. Definitely. And we've seen how big of an impact simple things like enabling payments and micropayments have already, you know, impacted and changed economies yeah. where the majority are underbanked, um, have transformed mom and pop shops, the, you know, multinationals. So we've seen these little bits of interference already building out that payments um, and currency ecosystem. So... I'm also looking forward to see how it uh, it stands out in the next few years. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. Um, this Absolutely. has been incredible. The content has been incredible. Um, and we definitely look forward to hosting you again. Awesome. Well, Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to be here today. Thank you so much. And thanks to all the listeners who, who've, uh, who've listened all the way through. <laughs>